0: Hey, thanks for listening. I just want to put it out there. Uh, first off, if you're listening on the website, you can actually download a mobile podcast app and listen to your phone on the go. It's mostly what I do for other podcasts. Uh, the app I use is called Stitcher. It's free. There's a couple advertisements, but it's not too bad. Apple also has their own podcast app. Uh, the, o- the Overcast is another good one that I've used before. Um, other than that, uh, no more housekeeping. If you want to keep up with some social media stuff, I'm Podcast on Instagram. And um, Facebook, I am just Curious George Pod. Other than that, this episode, I sit down to talk with Dr. Philip Hiscock, who is a former professor at Memorial University here in Newfoundland. We talk about... Um, Folklore, like what is it basically and uh, how it's different from pop, pop culture and how some folklore can become pop culture and vice versa. We also get into a few uh, uh, Newfoundland traditions and beliefs and uh, rituals and sort of demystify uh, their origins a little bit or at least get into the theories about some of these uh, strange uh, practices here on the island. And overall, it was a really good conversation. I just want to thank Philip again for coming in, and I hope you enjoy. Cool. All right, I'm here with Dr. Philip Hiscock. You were a professor at Munn. Yes. For how
1: long? Well, I worked at MUN for um, the best part of 40 years, but I wasn't a professor all that time. I was an archivist for the first 21 years, and then the last, uh, I have to do the arithmetic now, I can't remember, 17 or 18 years anyway, I was on faculty, and uh, I retired just uh, over a year ago. I retired on my 65th birthday in uh, September 2017.
0: Congratulations. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, So we're here today to talk about Newfoundland folklore. Uh, Just before we dive into it, can you sort of give me your definition of what folklore is and what that would encompass? Well,
1: um, people have different definitions and they're they're kind of school book definitions that I could bore you and your listeners with, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, For a long time, I taught my students and I worked from the idea that what folklore is, is informal uh, culture, informal knowledge, informal things that we do. By that, the informal part is really important it's, in other words, it's not formal culture informal culture then is the stuff that is you know taught in schools or used for commercial purposes or whatever you know the, the stuff that's codified somewhere informal culture folklore is the stuff that varies and it it's used by ordinary people for different purposes and you know, you tell a joke well that's informal culture you, know, you uh read a, a a script from a, a play, well, that's formal culture there. Now, there are informal aspects of that, but, uh, you know, the the ends, I know where the ends of the continuum are, uh, is it the ty- middle areas, all gray. Is
0: it typically um, more oral history?
1: can be oral. You know, it's primarily oral, I guess. Uh, it's not all oral history in the sense that people usually use that term. Uh, but lots of things. Uh, folklorists like to make a distinction uh, regularly between the, the tangible and the intangible, and both of those can be can have aspects that are interesting to the folklorist. Okay. I, I started to say both of those things can be folklore. Uh, well, that that's a trippy, you know, it's a it's a thing to trip you up uh, to say that. But there's certainly folkloric aspects to say I don't know the fence. You built this summer around your your house or or uh, the uh, color scheme that you used in painting the you know the kitchen and the counter and you know all those sorts of things well those are in some ways tangible and at the same time there's certainly folkloric aspects to I don't know the story that you know and you're not sure that your sisters know about how your parents met you know or something like that but, and that's intangible uh, so and that's oral history, that, that, that thing. Uh, but then, you know, you may have nicknames for all the different kinds of kids that were in your high school. You know, n- Not nicknames for the individuals, but for the groups. Although the individuals, just as much, those nicknames are, are, uh, are folklore. And again, that's intangible. So there's a huge array of stuff that is folklore, that yeah. is thought of as folklore by folklorists.
0: So it almost seems like... Um there would be some sort of like controversy or debate over where those edges blur, where it falls into folklore.
1: Yes, there could be if people were kind of pole up the hole about it. You know, yeah. but people, most, most folklorists aren't. They're, uh, they're pretty loose about these things while keeping the edges in mind. You know, uh, Most folklorists will very quickly tell you what the difference is between popular culture and folklore. On the other hand, they're very interested in popular culture because popular culture is often where folklore. It, well, it's it's part of a. One of my teachers was Peter Nervais. He talked about the folklore popular culture continuum, and in some ways, it's a it's a, a dynamic continuum, a kind of a circle, in the sense that both feed into the other. Each one feeds into the other, and uh, so uh, popular culture is largely a uh, a force that that invents, or that produces, or gives uh, gives resource to folklore. Um, and it's also a uh, a product of folklore. If you look at, say, I don't know, rock and roll music, you know, that came out of folk musics, and, uh, you know, several different kinds. And uh, uh, on the other hand, you know, the, the songs that uh, get sung at, you know, song nights in a bar, you know, traditional folk songs, often they were the product of earlier periods of popular culture mm. so folklorists understand the difference between popular culture and folklore many many folklorists see themselves just as much popular culturists as they are folklorists yeah but they don't get hung up on the border yeah
0: um so we're in newfoundland and newfoundland seems to me like i've never heard a discussion about folklore so intense as when I'm in Newfoundland, people are talking about traditions and beliefs, and it seems like Newfoundland's a, a pretty rich place for folklore in general. Um, why do you think that is, if that is the case?
1: Sure, it's the case, yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, but there's nothing kind of intrinsic about Newfoundland folklore that, that makes it the case. Uh, instead, it's, it's something that uh, a long time ago, 125 years ago, people were coming to Newfoundland and saying, oh my God, the folklore here, this is great. And, and writing articles for the Journal of American Folklore in the United States, or, you know, big newspapers and stuff. And Newfoundlanders were aware that their ordinary day-to-day culture was seen as some, somehow exotic. So even over a century ago, there was a sense by Newfoundlanders that there was something special here in the language and customs and song songs, in the beliefs, uh, and that, uh, that's carried on, I mean, for that, that's been a kind of unbroken awareness. So, there's a self-consciousness of folklore in Newfoundland and a pride that goes with that, a you know perfectly well-founded pride in that, that has led, I think, to uh, uh, a kind of a snowball effect of production of popular culture elements of folklore. So today we have a very, very rich popular culture of folklore where people you know have careers performing folk songs yeah. and inventing new folk songs to, to perform and uh, those songs becoming folk songs uh, which uh, didn't really exist in any large numbers anyway uh, 60 or 80 or 100 years ago. Uh, that, uh, that just keeps on going. So Newfoundland has a, a love uh, in its culture, it's general culture, a love of local culture and an awareness that local culture is often very um, uh, separate from other outside cultures or you know the so called hegemonic culture of north America you know hollywood and so on uh, have that awareness, and they also have an awareness that audiences like to hear that productive element in culture and that's true both in terms of stages you know like whether it's you know making a new cd in february month you know for RPM challenge or or uh, you know performing at a bar or at a folk festival as well as in daily face-to-face life so people love to hear other people using newfoundland words and then And then you know, kind of bouncing it around and and saying, "Oh, well, that's not exactly what my mother used to say." She used to say, "You know," and they've got something else. And then it becomes a whole conversation in itself, and and it's it's partly uh, built on a on a pride, a pride in and a a strong sense of cultural separateness.
0: Do you think that separateness is largely due to the fact that uh, we're on an island here? You think symbolically? I think that plays a role in it. Um,
1: Certainly symbolically. <clears throat> uh, so you get remakes of songs uh, like the Brendan Behan song, Thank God We're Surrounded by uh, by Water, about Ireland, came here. Tom Calvary wrote it into a Newfoundland one, which Joan Morrissey made so popular, and which keeps getting resurrected 50 years later. Uh, the The islandness of Newfoundland is really important to Newfoundland. Uh, Just, you know, take the ferry to blanc sablon and go up the road up the south coast to Labrador. There's no sense of islandness there, but there is a strong sense of linkage and a strong sense of difference from uh, Newfoundland culture. Uh, So, uh, you know, Labrador culture, you can't say, is because of its island nature. Uh, But Newfoundland, yeah, to some extent, When, when Newfoundlanders think of themselves as Newfoundlanders alone leaving aside the fact that their brothers and sisters in Labrador, then uh, yeah, I think the island is part of it. Uh, I have heard people uh, uh, lament the fact, for instance, that we just uh, got joined to the North American electric uh, system uh, through the cable across the Cabot Strait because they felt we're no longer completely island, completely you know, isolated in the in that etymological sense. That's a uh,
0: serious lament right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: right, yeah. Now perhaps they were joking, you know, perhaps yeah. it was meant as just, you know, drop it into the conversation and move on. But the fact that it can be even said suggests that there, there is a, a, a pride in that islandness, just as there is a pride in the half hour difference in the time zones yeah. and so on. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's part of it. But historically, that that's probably not a very big thing, although, you know, isolation from North American culture, I think, is certainly part historically of why Newfoundland culture evolved separately from Mm -hmm. North American culture. The, um, The fact is Newfoundland had an economy that was more closely connected in many ways, anyway, to Europe than it was to North America. And it's partly, you know, because of the resource nature of the Newfoundland economy for centuries. Fish, and the fish was selling primarily back in Europe. Later on, it it developed other markets uh, through European trade to the Caribbean and so on. Uh, but it, it never really had a big market into Canada. You know, there were people who were selling, say, potatoes from Placentia Bay, who were selling them to Canada, um, but uh, you know that wasn't a big uh, trade. <coughs> uh, people had family. By the uh, by, the time of the mid nineteenth century rush from Ireland into America. connections were being made between Newfoundland and America through Boston primarily and uh, so by the end of the 19th century there were lots of family connections into the New England states Um, and different parts of the island of Newfoundland had different kinds of connections Mm. so you know early on there were lots of family connections into Boston that retained that was retained really up until the early 50s when it switched into Canada and uh, Parts of, oh, say, Conception Bay had, had uh, connections, more connections down into New York City or New Jersey. Again, for work things, in the same way today so many people over the last 15 or 20 years, so many people have, uh, you know, had family members who commute back and forth to Alberta to work in the, in the oil fields up there. Uh, well, people had uh, relatives who would, to some extent, commute once a year uh, to uh, say New York City to work in the in the uh, steel ring, the building of the the big uh, skyscrapers and so on. But largely, Newfoundland was culturally separate, and uh, the schooling system was more like Britain. Um, now, as the American mass media system grew, say in the at the end of the 19th century, with uh, telegraph. Uh, wires bringing in news stories, so and the newspapers started to look more and more like North American newspapers. Uh, but you know, on the other hand, things retained, and and kids going to school here until say the nineteen sixties were far more like uh, kids going to school in Britain than uh, those in the United States or Canada.
0: Mm. Um, I was wondering too about uh, just before when we were talking about the the differences between pop culture and folklore would you consider like folklore to be a living thing that's always being contributed to like even at this moment even tonight like or or is it something like when you're teaching a class or when you were teaching how would you decide what you would classify as folklore and then teach like where does the line stop or is it
1: yeah the, it doesn't is the short answer they it's a big gray line or a big gray area that gets increasingly black or increasingly white, you know, towards pop culture or uh, folklore. Uh, I often, in teaching, often used, particularly when I was teaching the Newfoundland course, or, and for that matter, know the uh, folklore language uh, things that I taught as well, but take the Newfoundland folklore, Newfoundland Labrador folklore course that I taught for many years. um, I would often use popular culture things but then I would use them to show how folklore contributed to it, how folklore in some ways made it what it was, and how folklore came out of it. So you get, say, oh, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of a, a song out of the um, – and my mind is flicking back and forth among different uh, possibilities here uh, – let me just take one. the uh, uh how does it go the and i'm trying to remember the name of the man from from conceptually north who wrote this and i can't think of his name which is too bad um the light and power boys and uh, that's a song based on a country western song from the early 50s so this is a man who the man who wrote the light and power boys who um knew several uh songs that he thought were applicable to his desire to kind of honor the the men who would go around after a snowstorm and work in the snowstorm, in fact, and get wires restrung, get power back on, and so on. It was a lighthearted uh, song. He recorded that in his own house, and it went out to a radio station, and then it went on a record, and then people were buying it, and, and so on. So there was an element of Com- commerce in it you know and uh, there's an element of popular culture in the sense that it's it's uh, in a sense a parody of some famous popular culture songs uh, but there's that that local element and that ability to modify things and turn them to a new purpose that's so important you asked about the uh, you know is folklore just being modified all the time and yes and that's in some ways that's the very difference well I shouldn't say it's the very difference it's one of the, the important differences between popular culture and folklore in that popular culture items tend to be crystallized they you know if you're a musician um, you're just dying to produce the best recording you know it might be take 43 or something but god damn it you got it and you've locked it down and then you've sent it to Spotify because you've got an agreement with Spotify and they take that one recording and that's the one they sell to people you know over and over and over again so if I then say hey I, I heard George just recorded this great song you know I, I, I'm gonna you know try to get that and I go to Spotify and I get it or I download it from iTunes or whatever you know I that's the one I get and likewise your cousin in Albania and you know your your you know, sister-in-law somewhere else and so on. And everybody is getting that same exact same performance. Now, if you then sing this, or say your sister-in-law starts singing it in, you know, um, wherever she is in Rome, and um, she's heard your version, but now it's her version and she's performing it and she's performing it every night and twice some nights because she gets a standing ovation every time and and she sings it at parties and and other people pick it up every one of those is different and that's that's where the big difference lies between folklore and popular culture so her source was popular culture in a sense even if it was her brother-in-law saying it um but she's performing it in these folkloric ways in these Face to face ways, and everyone is different. And uh, she may pass it on to someone else who may mishear a certain word, you know, and, you know, put in something else. Mm. There's a nice article I mentioned, Peter Nervais. Peter wrote a nice article about um, Ron Hines' song, Sonny's Dream. And uh, uh, Ron was really tickled by the fact that people learned his song, not from him, but from other people singing it, and then misheard or couldn't make sense of things and and changed the words. And so the song came to be other things to other people. Mm. And uh, he he said to Peter, and this was the beginning of Peter's article, uh, I think I wrote a folk song. (laughs) And the idea was that all these people are singing my song, but it's not at all the song I wrote. Well, it's not completely the song I wrote. It's it's something else so it entered folklore and started morphing the way folklore does and folklore if it's successful will continue morphing for centuries or or millennia and so some of the folklore that we folklorists look at is old stuff lots of it like we've been talking about is not old at all but some of it is old and uh, when we look at how it's made it through all those years all those generations of tellers um, we see that it's through morphing to fit current conditions, and so things get um, get changed over time. They get changed sometimes in subtle ways. Uh, I did work nearly twenty years ago on a, uh, a legend, a folk legend, historical folk legend uh, from Conception Bay, uh, that says that the earliest uh, European settlers, certainly the earliest European baby born in Newfoundland was to a woman named Sheila who was a princess, an Irish princess.
0: Was this in Cupid's?
1: Uh, Well, yeah, it was based in Cupid's and she was said to live further down the shore in in Bristol's Hope, what's now Bristol's Hope Mosquito. And um, the um, the connections to Cupid's are very very strong so um, they uh, that story has only been around for less than 100 years. Um, and so there seems to be no historical evidence that the people involved, Princess Sheila and her husband, uh, Gilbert Pike, that they ever really existed. The, However, we when we look at the story and how it's told through the four or five generations in the 100 years that it's been around... We see that it has different hooks for different generations. And uh, there's the, the the hook today of, kind of this very strong woman who was a wonderful role model for for young women, to you know, a woman who took control of her community when when it needed it, and woman who, who led people and, and brought about education and all sorts of things. And and then in earlier generations it's about uh, fighting pirates, and just the popular culture of piracy was around in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and, and so uh, she, you know she was a she and her husband fought and, and sometimes won and sometimes lost against pirates. And in earlier periods, again, then it was about how Newfoundland was based in in this uh, this marriage, this fruitful marriage, uh, which came from Irish Catholics and. English Protestants, and how Newfoundland needed to get past its Roman Catholic and or its Protestant uh, wars and uh, uh, come together as a single population. So it had all these meanings and others besides. It's the same, well, the same in quotation marks, the same story, but uh, it means different things in different times. And that's so typical of folklore that in different contexts, it, it changes, it changes its uh, meaning sometimes it changes its form
0: that's cool it's almost like um, people singing the same song but in different ways right it's well the same sure song, with different
1: people... meanings and uh, yeah. yeah so a song that that might be sung to a bunch of young adults might be seen as highly sexualized but sung to children it becomes just this wow this mystical story of good and bad or something and i'm actually thinking of one in particular and that's Uh, When Great Big Sea did uh, roll me over next to the wall, uh, Captain Wedderburn, they called it just Captain Wedderburn. It's a highly sexualized story about an encounter between two willing participants. (laughs) And, you know, it's a lovely story for the end of the the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, However, it's an old song and, you know, hundreds of years old. And in the older forms, it's about a rape, a rape by someone who appears to be the devil and the woman uh, essentially fends him off with being smarter. Uh, so the same song, sort of, but with completely different meanings in these different contexts.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how it's almost like the the morals of the generation are projecting onto the the meaning of the story or the meaning of the song or Whatever the piece of folklore happens. I don't to be. think
1: there's any almost involved in that. I think that <laughs> it is precisely that. Yeah, I think you've hit on it.
0: Uh, I want to focus in on a couple Newfoundland things that uh, have just always miffed me, and perhaps others. I don't know if you, I don't know if you have any specific details or origin stories for each of these things, but I'd like to see if you do. Um, mummers. Has always been an interesting tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, basically around Christmas time, uh, in certain communities, uh, your neighbors will dress up in uh, whatever they can find, essentially to disguise their identity, and then they'll go house to house, um, usually playing music and dancing, and you'll offer them a drink, and it's all merry and very festive. That's that's pretty much the gist of it, right?
1: That's a that's a, a gist of it. I a think gist of it. yes, okay. that's right. Yeah. So See, what are, what are
0: the what are the origins of that or the the ongoing significance of
1: it? Um, well, I'll, I'll try to do both those things because they're interrelated. The origins are murky. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, now we we know that they're um, quite. Uh, this is an old custom. It's an old custom that's in no way unique to Newfoundland. Uh, and it has, uh, you know, second or third or fourth cousins in customs in uh, Northern Europe and Eastern Europe, even today. Um, so um, it's, it's something that goes back to, um, oh, I don't know, medieval times. It has, uh, again, cousins in some other kind of masking ceremonies and some other uh, world-turned-upside-down ceremonies that we've seen over the last several hundred years in many places. But just to take the, the Christmas dress-up thing, uh, here in Newfoundland, it has uh, two major names. There are other minor names, mummering and jannying. And Janning tends to be a word, or the jannies as the noun, tends to be the word used in uh, parts of Newfoundland that are not particularly Irish. In other words, they are particularly West Country English. And we might talk after about West Country versus Irish culture in Newfoundland. The uh, In some parts of Newfoundland 100 years ago, it was said that, uh, oh, only the Catholics go mummering. Or in some other parts, oh, only the Protestants go mummering. <laughs> And it was seen by many people as a one, an ethnic, two, a religious, and three, a class-based distinction. And it was never universal. Uh, And uh, when in 1861, so that's 150 years ago, almost 160 years ago, um, some mummers killed a man in the Bay Roberts area. First of all, the churches, primarily the the Protestant churches, and then the government became really upset and tried to outlaw it. They they succeeded in restricting it. And uh, that restriction worked very well for a short time in some places. It continued to work very well just by uh, kind of uh, class bias, I guess, in some other places. So, for instance, St. John's had the core part, or the, and certainly the newer parts of St. John's, had very few mummers through the 20th century. Some of the older parts of St. John's, not downtown primarily, but some of the older neighborhoods, uh, oh, uh, out the Portugal Cove Road, uh, the Battery, the uh, Mundy Pond area, mummering continued unabated all through the 20th century. The uh, but in most Local communities, the farther from St. John's, the more likely um, mummering also continued unabated. The, uh, you asked about whether Newfoundland folklore was related to its being an island, um, and I started to talk a bit about isolation, you know, the, the concept of being an island. Uh, isolation is part of why mummering continued in Newfoundland and it did not continue in some other parts. Newfoundland uh, was a, uh, a nation or a, a conglomeration of communities and regions which didn't uh, always speak very far to one another. They spoke to the next one and the next one on, but you know, there, there's a great deal of uh, very local development in lots of folklore. Mummering became a way to deal with that fact that you hardly ever saw anyone from outside the community. And one of the reasons why Mummering declined when it did so precipitously in the second half of the 20th century is because transportation became very easy. So you couldn't count on the fact, if you opened your door, that you did, in fact, know someone who was coming in that door. They might have just driven 60 miles from somewhere else, and you've got no idea who they are. And people became kind of freaked out by that. The... um, In some ways, that's part of the excitement of it now in the 21st century for people. They have a sense that, Mm. uh, you know, these really could be strangers. Mm. So in the 1960s and 70s, there was quite a bit written by academics about uh, how the mummer represented the stranger in a kind of very general sense. And uh, and mummers certainly did do things. They'd they'd be asked to, uh, they'd be asked questions, you know, in an effort to try to find out who they were. You know, where did you come from? And oh, I came from the North Pole. <laughs> you know, and you know, they'd say things like that in that kind of a voice, with, you know, totally disguise their voice. Uh, so they that that sense of stranger certainly was there, and certain parts of Newfoundland had a stronger. Sense of the folklore of the stranger than others. So, in Conception Bay, that wasn't a particularly strong feature. But if you go up the northwest coast, then the stranger, the the runaway, this was a, you know, a real, uh, real concept in in people's minds. Uh, people who were not to be necessarily trusted. So, mummering was. Uh, just why it existed, uh, what its origins in Newfoundland culture were, has been argued about and discussed and examined by many people. One anthropologist in the early 1980s came up with a very reasonable explanation, um, uh, though I, I know it's not a universal one, but it, it certainly worked in the communities that he was familiar with. and. Uh, And I don't think it was universal there either. But he said that people used mummering as a way to reestablish working relationships, economic relationships with other people, particularly men with other men to fish with in the the following spring and sort of rebuild fishing crews on boats or to break them. And so mummering was a way of of, uh, kind of... uh, I don't want to say it was some kind of social steam valve, but it was a way of expressing aggression or to a, a way of moving people out of your circle rather than into your circle. And uh, I'm sure that was done. So, the what you come away with in the, you know, we're at the end of the second decade of the 21st century now, and we can look back over 50 or 60, 70 years of people talking about mummering, trying to make sense of it. What you come away f- from. All that with is a sense of the multiform nature of the function of mummering. In other words, it did a lot of things. People did it for lots of different reasons. Yeah. you know, some were doing it to, you know, just uh, get out of the house. You know, they're bored and stretch their legs. Some were doing it to surprise someone who didn't expect it. And some were doing it to get laid. And some were doing it. You know, there are lots of different reasons for for and there still are lots of different reasons for doing mummering. And uh, there's no single one, and that's one reason why it was so successful. And, and I won't go off on a speech yeah. about Russian folkloristic theory, but <laughs> you know, uh, modern folklore theory uh, doesn't like to ever say there's a single uh, function of anything. That things are successful when there's multifunctionality, yeah. and I think mummering is a really good example of that. That's cool.
0: I was like coming into it, I was hoping to get like. This is where it started. This is why we did it. But <laughs> I mean, it's all those I hadn't heard those theories before, so yeah. that's kind of cool too. We
1: we know that there were mummers' masks brought here in fifteen eighty three or whenever it was. Sir Humphrey Gilbert landed here, and um, so you know that what's that? That's four hundred and thirty five years ago. And uh, whether though, his mummers' masks were being used in the way that we think, based in our you know, very heavy understanding and knowledge of the 20th century uh, is another question. And, mm. and uh, I suspect we'd be wrong to think that. Uh, so, But what we start seeing mummering in the reports here in a big way at the end of the 1700s. So that's not to suggest that it just started then, but it was certainly widespread enough that it was a matter of note by people by mm. then. Uh we see very similar mummering in the West Country of England in the 19th century as here. Um, and uh, often with uh, you know, the same trappings and so on. So, uh, we, we know that it came from Ireland. We know that it came from England. We know that the English and the Irish forms are related to other European forms. And beyond that, um, well, I shouldn't say we don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, there may be someone who's putting together a book on the prehistory of Newfoundland Mummering. That would be very nice. And you know, I look forward to that. <laughs>
0: yeah, that'd be cool. Um, so, I work for a beer company and deliver beer uh, on the Southern Shore. Mm-hmm. So, every Wednesday and Thursday, I get to drive down to almost Cap Hayden, basically. And I love looking. Clearly,
1: there. you don't live there because you would have said I drive up to Cap
0: Hayden. Yeah, 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 up the shore. Right.
1: <laughs> right. I still make that mistake from
0: the time to <laughs> time even though you're going down geographically. Well, in modern sensibility. Yeah, down, yeah. that's another great Newfoundland uh, language thing, you know. It's up is down, down is up with regard to sure the line. shoreline. Um, and I know uh, there's like a traditional stories about like fairies and stuff mm-hmm. down that way. And I'm not sure if fairyland is, no, not related. Different spelling, I knew that, but like.
1: Yeah. And the origin is different. It, uh, Fairland comes from, um, it's a Portuguese word. That's the earliest spellings of it that we say, uh, um, you know, f- farion. And uh, to be honest, I can't remember the exact meaning of it, but it's something like headland. You know, it's uh, the biggest headland there, you know. It it goes out over right the, there. Yeah, yeah the, out to the, the lighthouse and so on. So uh, that's the origin. However, how the Portuguese word got into English and then pronounced... Uh, well, by some, as Fairyland. If you're from Fairyland, you don't say Fairyland; you say Furland, <laughs> Furland. Yeah. It, it's a little different. And uh, but uh, for other people, uh, and people have been making jokes for a long time that it's the land of fairies. And so, I mean, um, when fairy meant unambiguously those people out in the woods who might take you away, that's one thing. But by the middle of the 20th century, that was unamb- it wasn't unambiguous. It now it could mean someone who was some male who was effeminate. By the mm. end of the twentieth century, so it became a kind of. Um, uh, I think people used it less that meaning that understanding of the meaning. Yeah, which was always a joke. I think by the way, you know, it was used. It wasn't used as the real historical explanation.
0: No, so what is the deal with like that tradition of fairies in Newfoundland? Fairies in the sense of whimsical woods creatures and not. Feminine men. <laughs> right,
1: yeah. The, uh, or uh, little girls dressed in yeah. uh, you know, sparkly dresses and, and sparkly wands and stuff. Um, whimsical might not be the best word to use. Okay. Um, whimsical suggests uh, you know, fun and you know, lack of fear and so on. Whereas the Newfoundland fairies have always been kind of scary. Uh, there, there, there are a couple of parallels with mummering. Uh, and fairies, by the way. Uh, and one of them is the sense of outsiders. So I mentioned that mummering is often um, interpreted as uh, a way of making the, no- the the everyday into something strange and making people you know well into strangers and then dealing with the concept of strangers. Well, in a sense fairies are the same. And So there's been uh, again, a lot of Uh, academic discussion and analysis and and surmise about uh, the Newfoundland customs of ferries for the last 30, more than 30 years. Um, One of the the nicest sets of explanations uh, talk about land or, or areas that are really very familiar in our home territory and then Areas that are beyond that. They're outside. They're the strange area. And you can't really count on that for uh, the same kind of surety of of, you know, security of self that uh, you could in the, the more local areas. And that's a you know a nice idea. But again, another one of the the parallels with mummering is that the tradition of fairies is again. Uh, we see it in the west country of England. We see it in south of Ireland, two areas that Newfoundland European populations came from, and are the two major areas. Uh, but there are links then off into other European countries, and their beliefs in little people or uh, uh, country people or wild people or you know whatever. And so it's a tradition that's been around a long time in European culture. And uh, Newfoundland is one of the places where it's retained. Another one is Iceland. Iceland, it's it's stronger than here. And so I uh, I don't follow it really closely, but I see that uh, Iceland has increasingly in the past five or six years been uh, legitimizing and institutionalizing fairy belief and in lots of ways that Newfoundland has not. Mm. Um, Newfoundland uh, um, I think if someone said that a certain tree could not be cut down for a highway, the tree would get cut down in Newfoundland. These days in in Iceland, that's not the case. It, uh, the, the highway would be diverted mm. around a, uh, something that was clearly shown by oral historical means to be related to local fairy belief. So uh, the fairies were always a matter of fear. Fear. Um, you uh, would, you know, if you believed in fairies, and again, like so much else, it's, it's not universal. It was never universal, these beliefs. But uh, you would put food in your pocket. Some people said that was to protect yourself uh, against eating their food. Others said it was to placate the fairies by feeding them. You know, take it either way. Um, and that bread was often... Uh, um, that food was often bread or hardtack or something like that. Or it might have even been chocolate. Some people carried chocolate for that same purpose, or they said it was for the fairies. You know, I have, oh, I better take a chocolate bar for the for the fairies. <clears throat> <You> know, <laughs> so, uh, who knows? Uh, lots of fairy belief had that kind of wink-wink-nod aspect about it. So th- there's some very dark um, interpretations of fairy belief that... Uh, um, are so dark that you, you. at least I think they were probably true in some cases. These you know, really do explain things. So for instance, um, there are stories of women who showed up at home beaten up and the children being told, oh, the fairies had she, you know, the fairies had her and she, she got beaten up by the fairies. When it's clear to anyone sensible that it was probably a human being that beat her up and the children are perhaps being protected in someone's mind from the reality of that aggression by being told that it's something else and the children growing up some of them credibly (laughs) credulously uh, carrying that the rest of their lives that the fairies had their grandmother or their aunt or someone Uh, similarly though not quite as dark um, people who went into the woods and then um, had some kind of a tryst and then were late coming back and came back a little, you know, buttons buttoned up wrong or something, um, might say to someone, oh, "The fairies had me." <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I I I I went in and I lost my way and I know it was the fairies, when in fact they were just simply hiding the fact that they met a favorite person. And in yeah. the woods and, you know, had a good time. So, um, you know, we, we know that fairy belief is used for lots of different reasons or has been used. The, the, like a lot of beliefs, it's often reported when you look at it closely as a belief about people's belief rather than a belief that the person reporting has. In other words... Can you say that again? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Instead of being actually a report of belief, it's a report about social views of other people. Okay. And so those people are really weird out there at the end of the road. So they believe in fairies, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So we know that uh, uh, we see this with witch stories as well and uh, other kinds of folklore um often it's a way of talking about people that you don't want to be associated with, particularly. It's a little like the word skeet in modern uh, in modern Newfoundland English <laughs> I like that where <laughs> skeet is a way of saying I'm not like that yeah I'm way cooler than that, you know I'm way more moral than that. I dress way better than that you know I certainly don't pick up butts off the road to smoke them, you know I'm no skeet you know so skeet is very much a class word used by middle class people about people they perceive as not middle class well fairy lore has partly been used in that same way to um to uh, not so much make fun as to kind of uh, diminish or demean other people
0: Mm. i never knew that because i always with the stories and stuff or like knowing that there was a fairy tradition i just assumed like sort of popular media version of a fairy, or like you said earlier, like a little girl with a wand and the glitter and that kind of thing. But right,
1: and that, that's sort of typical of the Disneyfication of folklore in, in a lot of ways, that they take real adult folklore, which often deals with adult themes and you know real problems uh, for adults, and uh, turn them into childish things that really are expurgated from all those adult themes. So uh, when we look at Disney fairies, it's nothing like real fairies. I mean, the real lore of fairies. Um, now, I, I've in, in talked to you the last five minutes. I've, I've been um, highlighting the uh, a kind of a disbelief, a, a, a tradition of disbelief in fairies. But there are people, I've met lots of them, who believe in fairies. And uh, so for them, these are uh, people who are kind of scary, you know, but they're also kind of cute. And I know one woman who, she's now 90, uh, when she was, uh, she's almost 90, When she was three or four. She's not sure exactly how old she was. She was in her grandmother's garden, and uh, she saw a little line of fairies. And, and kind of a mix of the popular culture and the local tradition. She was certainly scared of them, and her, her grandmother told her that she should be scared of them. Uh, grandmother didn't see them, by the way, but a uh, friend told her about them. But they were all quite short, which is quite different from most fairy lore and from that. And they were all dressed alike. And we do get that tradition, dressed alike often with pointed hats. This is very much a popular culture image mm-hmm. of the, the fairy. Uh the folklore image of the fairy is much more likely that it will be someone who's dressed just as you and I are you know uh and who it looks just like us the same height and so on, but has these powers to to um uh stop time for you to put you to sleep to uh, uh to exchange babies to turn babies into monsters and so on. Wow, well,
0: I don't want to keep you too long. Uh, It's almost 4 o'clock Well, well,
1: uh, we can go a little while longer.
0: Um, Just one last quick one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tibbs Eve, is it TIBB or (laughs) TIPP?
1: Or TIB or TIP or, yeah. Uh, Or (laughs) TIPSY or, uh, well, the short answer is it's December 23rd. Uh, Much longer answer. Um, hinges on the history of this phrase uh, until Tibbs Eve, which is not at all peculiar to Newfoundland. It's part of the English stock of proverbial phrases going back uh, oh, at least a couple hundred years anyway. And which simply uh, meant n- never. Uh, you know, it's like there used to be a song, a popular song in the 50s, the 12th of never, which uh, or or. Uh, and people say something like the, a month of Sundays, or they're really just using proverbial phrases to talk about long periods of time or um, uh, or never at all. Well, that's how "tipsy" was used for many generations, right up until oh, around the Second World War, a little after when in uh newfoundland somewhere somewhere newfoundland i think it was down on the south coast perhaps in fortune bay perhaps on the buren peninsula maybe even in placentia bayside um, perhaps southwest coast i'm not sure where somebody nailed it down to december 23rd now this is uh really interesting one of the traditional responses to a child who when told uh you know when when the child asks, "So when am I going to get you know X?" Uh, and the parent says, no, "Oh, tipsy," um, meaning you know, you won't, but the child doesn't know that. Then the child, being smart, says, "Well, when is that?" And well, one of the traditional answers by an adult to a child who'd asked that is uh, neither before nor after the New Year. Or uh, there was a, there was a series of these that were related to the Christmas season. Now that's that's one sideline point. Another sideline point is there's a whole tradition of extending traditional seasons. So, uh, you know, TGIF, thank God it's Friday, where people down tools at noon and go off to the bar or something, you know, or the idea that you shouldn't start anything new on a Friday. In other words, you quit work. Once you finish something Friday, you quit work and go home, you know, and so on. Saint Monday was a 19th century thing in, in uh, industrial Britain where uh, workers wouldn't show up after the weekend, after Sunday, because uh, they were celebrating Saint Monday. <laughs> I
0: uh, like that
1: one. <laughs> or uh, or uh, uh, Saint Sheila's Day, not related to Sheila Nogueira that we were talking about earlier, but Saint Sheila's Day is March 8th. She never existed. Uh, March 18th, I'm sorry. <clears throat> she never existed, but she was a good explanation for people who drunk up uh, who who drank too much on St Patrick's Day and then couldn't get to work uh, the next day. So there are all these traditions of extending seasons. Now, Tibbs Eve, um, if you were an old fashioned Christian of the sort that there were very few today, there are some, you would have seen Advent as being a penitential season, not very much different from Lent in that sense. You gave up things. You didn't party wildly. Uh, There's a whole lot of things associated with Advent that were also associated with Lent. Advent ends, technically, liturgically, uh, at midnight on Christmas Eve. And so for lots of people here in land, Christmas began midnight Christmas Eve. Lots of people still today have uh, fish for supper Christmas Eve. And then at midnight, they break out the ham and and start drinking and, and... Uh, They might go off to a church service at midnight and come back and then have this this scoff before going to bed Uh, That's part of this recognition of the fact that the Christmas season doesn't begin until midnight on Christmas Eve and that Christmas Eve itself is part of the penitential season, but by the 20th century, Christmas Eve was breaking down. Christmas Eve was really becoming part of the celebration and people would have drinks in the workplace and so on. And, and, you know, the middle of the 20th century, we saw that penitential stuff uh, disappearing for those Christian churches that had carried it on beyond even earlier when many others gave that up. Um, But you can push it further Then, you know, Christmas doesn't start till Christmas Eve. Well, no, there's this Tibbs Eve thing. (laughs) It's the Eve of Christmas Eve, and we can start Christmas then. And some people used to call it Tipsy Eve because they said, jokingly, you know, with an elbow on the side. uh, Well, that's when you can start getting tipsy with you. That's when you can break out your your St. Pierre booze that you you got. In the early part of the 20th century, lots of people would go in this time of the year. As we're talking, it's mid-November. And... uh, uh, you'd go to St. Pierre and pick up a, a shipload of booze and save it for Christmas. Well, what day would you break it open? You know, well, midnight on Christmas Eve, if you're that way inclined, or sometime on Christmas Eve. Or if you have Tipsy Eve or Tibbs Eve, then you can do it on the 23rd. So that's where Tibbs Eve came from. That's the back route, uh, the back story of Christmas Eve, or of Tibbs Eve, I'm sorry. Um, it really was a South Coast thing through, say, the 50s and 60s. In the 70s, it started being seen um, on the west coast of Newfoundland. So I've seen reports from Stephenville and Cornerbrook. Among families that came from the south coast, uh, generally Fortune Bay through the southwest coast over to, say, uh, port of basque families came from there up the west coast, brought it with them. And then starting in the 1990s, just 20 years ago, then we started seeing it here in St. John's and it caught on really wildly here in St. John's. So uh, I know of several people who regularly hold uh, Tibbs Eve parties and there are regular Tibbs Eve you can see I flick back and forth. You started by saying is it Tibbs Eve or Tipsy? Eve? Yeah. I go back and forth. The uh, um, uh, regular get together is on December 23rd uh, in various bars downtown St. John's. Um, by the way, I, the, I didn't explain to you why Tib's Eve, the original proverb, was a bit of a joke. Um, Tib was a name in, say, the when, 400 years ago or 500 years ago. Uh, Tib was a name given to female cats. Now, this is before the days of vet, veterinarian, uh, you know, being able to cut a cat open and Fix her, or as a friend of mine say, break her. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, if, if you had a female cat, then you were going to have kittens. And if you had a female cat, you had a cat that was fairly promiscuous. She was out, you know, being sniffed and sniffing around herself, looking for men, <laughs> tomcats to get together with. So it was, it was seen as a name that transferred to a young girl, indicated promiscuity. So it was a big joke, and there were there were plays during the Restoration period uh, uh, that have a character named Tib. And the, clearly, it's the case that when Tib comes on, the audience laughs. Oh, here comes Tib! Oh, oh, Because oh, oh. they think, oh, well, you know, she's looking to get a bit now soon, and uh, yeah. that's the story is about to turn. And so, the idea that there be a Tib's Eve was kind of, uh, you know, caught. Then, because that suggests there's a saint Tib when everybody knows that every Tib in the you know in the pub the folk mind was a, a loose woman of yeah. some sort, and uh, so uh, the idea that there would be a Tib's Eve was a big joke for adults. That mm. would be that would go over the heads of kids.
0: Yeah, it's cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, demystifying a few of those. <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> Um, great man, thanks for coming in again. No problem. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. For any and all past episodes, be sure to search Curious Jord on your favorite podcasting app. You can also find me on any of those time-consuming and soul-sucking social media platforms by searching Curious Jord Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Cheers.